0: Amen. It is a blessing to be a part of the body of Christ. I'm glad that you're here this morning as we share in this time together. All month long, we've been talking about what it means for us to be the body of Christ, and the language we've been using is uh, the language that comes from Scripture, reminding us that we are a new creation. We are a new creation people. And with a new creation, there comes a new culture. And that's really what I'd like for us to spend our time thinking about today, the, the culture that we're called to create as new creations. You could argue that the New Testament is, is written to tell us what kind of people we ought to be, how we ought to go about creating this kind of culture, this kingdom culture is the language we'll use here today. And Jesus, I believe in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is, is preaching this message to help us understand what kind of creators of culture we ought to be. If we're truly a a new creation in the kingdom of God, then we are called to embody the best principles of that kingdom. And that's what Jesus is is really getting at in the Sermon on the Mount. He uses this contrasting way of teaching. He says, you've heard it said so-and-so, but I say unto you this. So he takes this point and, and, and he contrasts it now with this new culture that he speaks into existence as he preaches that sermon. I think you could say that's the entire point of the Sermon on the Mount. So he says, for instance, you are the salt of the earth. And then he spends the rest of the sermon kind of fleshing that out. Well, here's what saltiness looks like or tastes like in the world, okay? Uh, He says, you are the light of the world. And then he proceeds to tell us exactly how we reflect God's light out into uh, the world. And as he does this, as he, as he helps us get our minds wrapped around this, this culture we're called to participate in and help to create, um, what, what Jesus does there is he paints this picture that is radically different from the picture we often get in the prevailing culture. And that's, again, the point of contrast. So, so we might think, according to prevailing wisdom and the prevailing culture, that it's okay for you to hate your enemies. But Jesus comes along and says, no, no, no. I want you to love your enemies and pray for those who would persecute you. Prevailing wisdom says someone strikes you. Well, the way you prevent that from happening again is what? You, you strike back harder. But Jesus says, no, that's not the way it works in the kingdom of God. Instead, we create a culture of turning the other cheek, seeking peace. All of these kinds of things that Jesus has to say. So, so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus here is, is pointing us, he's speaking uh, about a, a kingdom culture we're called to create. And so how does, that, how does that happen? What does that look like? Well, there's a lot of things we could say. There's a lot of things Jesus says there. He says in this kingdom culture, uh, we no longer spend our time consumed with worry because instead we are wholeheartedly pursuing the kingdom of God first and foremost more than any other thing in our lives. In this kingdom culture, giving and praying are, are done privately, and they're done secretly, not to gain the applause of man, but instead to honor God as king. In this kingdom culture, Jesus says, the treasure on earth pales in comparison to treasure in heaven. And it's this kingdom culture that Jesus is calling us to embody and to help create, things like truth-telling and promise-keeping and peacemaking, those are some of the highest ideals according to Jesus in the culture that we're called to participate in and, and create. And even as Jesus teaches us how to pray, he says that, that there is to be this parallel between God's will on Uh, in heaven and the will of God here on earth that we are pursuing. He even teaches us to pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven, and then to spend our lives passionately pursuing the fulfillment of that prayer. And one other place, Jesus says that in this kingdom culture that we're called to embody and create, that we take speech Our speech pattern, our words, we take those those so seriously that we dare not even call someone you fool for the fear of the fires of hell. These are the kinds of things that Jesus points us to as he calls us to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. It's this kingdom culture we're called to create. And this morning what I'd like to do is spend time talking about just one aspect of that, one of those pieces there that Jesus teaches us. I'd like for us to think about our speech. I'd like for us to think about our conversations and how those conversations can be used to create the kind of kingdom culture that we're called to as new creations in the world. You know, a conversation can radically change your life. One conversation can dramatically impact your life and shape your life, either, either for better or for worse. So, encouragement from a professional mentor, that can alter the trajectory of your career, right? And and likewise, discouragement from that same professional mentor, that can alter the trajectory of your career as well. Who knows how many relationships have taken root, all because of an engaging and lively conversation that took place on that first date. Someone comes to you and, and they say, you know, I need to tell you something. That phrase can lead to some of the most joyous, wondrous, amazing conversations that you will ever have in your life. And likewise, when someone says, I need to tell you something, that can open the door to some of the most painful, heart-rending conversations that we can have as well. A conversation can change your life. And some of us are here today bearing witness to the fact that a conversation can even change eternity. I think that's why God has so much to say in the Bible about our language, about our conversation. Uh, From the practical wisdom of places like Proverbs and James, through the teaching of Jesus and the letters of Paul, The Bible is filled with instruction on the kinds of conversations we ought to have and the kinds of conversations that just don't bear spiritual fruit at all. Way back in the the opening scene of Scripture, the first act recorded that God participates in there in Genesis 1, the first thing you see God doing is creating through speech. God speaks and stuff happens. He speaks and, and worlds are created. And so scholars note how we too because we bear the image of God, we use our language to help create these worlds that we live in. We do this all the time. Some of us did it just a few moments ago. We, we meet someone new. We meet someone for the first time, and what do we do? We, we you know, shake hands, and then we begin to introduce ourselves. And, and by saying my, my name, my first name and my last name, I'm telling a story. This is, this is the people I come from. <laughs> By telling you what I do for a living, I'm telling you part of my story. I'm, I'm inviting you into this world that I inhabit. If I begin to tell you about the web of relationships I have, I introduce myself as, you know, Sonny's husband or, you know, the father to my children. Or I begin to tell you just about my family. I'm inviting you into not only my family experience, but I'm inviting you into this world through the use of my language. We use language. We use conversations all the time to frame the reality in which we live. That's why God is so interested in our conversations so two texts that we'll look at here this morning Ephesians four twenty nine and Colossians 4 6 we'll be here the rest of our time together this morning the word says let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear And then Colossians 4, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So new creation people take part in edifying speech. They use language in a way that builds up rather than tears down. And so again, right off the bat, we can note a point of contrast with the language that we're called to inhabit and embody in the kingdom of God versus the way language is used in our culture today. Uh, we have made an art form out of language that tears down in our culture, right? I mean, we have made a, an art form out of language that just kind of guts and skewers and cuts deep and, and tears somebody down. We have a word for that. We, we talk about character assassination, you know? I don't know if previous cultures had that word in their vocabulary or not, but we sure do, right? Because we understand how language can be used and is often used in our culture today. But you lay that right alongside a, a passage or two like this, and it's easy to see the contrast point. That we, as new creations in the world, we don't embody that old speech pattern. right? Instead, we're called, as kingdom people, to language that is constructive. Language that is edifying. Uh, the words in, in this text, okay, so in Ephesians 4.29, I've underlined the word talk, and in Colossians 4, the word speech, okay? Those are two English words uh, in our in our Bibles, but they are English translations of the same word in Greek. And it's a Greek word many of us are familiar with. It's the Greek word logos. It's a pretty common word in ancient Greek, they say. It's, uh, it basically means speech. It means conversation. Any kind of utterance, you'd use that word logos to describe it. Uh, without being kind of redundant sounding, logos is the Greek word for word, okay? And so when we hear that word, when we hear logos, uh, we're taken back to another place in Scripture, John chapter 1. We're taken to the opening scene of John's gospel because John uses this word as he describes the gospel, as 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 he preaches to us, as he teaches us. He says in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, logos, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So he's saying that this this logos, he's using this word, the Greek word for word, to describe Jesus himself. But not only that, in the ancient culture, that word logos, it also carried with it the meaning of wisdom, intellect, logic. And so John carefully chooses this word under the inspiration of the spirit to to bear the freight of Christ's identity he's saying to us that when Jesus entered into the world that that Jesus is the wisdom of God come alive that he is the spoken word of God to us communicating to us he says a word of grace and truth it's a powerful little word and so this leads us to a pretty immediate implication, I think. We lay John 1-1 alongside these two texts here, Ephesians 4 and Colossians 4. We can see an implication for those of us who follow Jesus. This is our first kind of big idea here for today. And it's, and it's this, that our words are to be formed in the image of the word. Our words, our our everyday conversation, our Monday through Friday, Sunday through Saturday language, the conversations that we take part in, if we call ourselves by the name of Jesus, those words ought to be formed and shaped and patterned after the divine word. We could say it this way, we we are seeking after Word, capital W, Word-inspired words. Again, words that are modeled after the kind of person, the character of Jesus Christ. So does my speech pattern reflect the lordship of Jesus? That's the question. And we've talked a lot over the last year or so about what it means for us to be a missional church. Well, this is one of the easiest ways for us. We use conversation all the time to create culture. Are we using conversation to create the kind of culture that's consistent with the mission of God? Words that are patterned after the divine, eternal, living word. Both of these texts use another important word that help us kind of put some legs on this idea, okay? So we go back here to Ephesians 4 and Colossians 4, and we find the same idea here again. It's this word grace. We are called as kingdom people to embody language that is gracious, that is exceedingly gracious. Gracious speech has always been a hallmark of Christianity always. In some translations of Ephesians 4, instead of that it may give grace to those who listen, some translations say that it may benefit those who listen. So in your translation, it may read that way. But, but either way, the idea there is still the same, that, that as God's new creation community, the language we speak is to be exceedingly gracious and beneficial to others. So here's another implication of that. I think that that implies that Christians, perhaps more than anyone else, Christians should be concerned with civility and graciousness when it comes to their speech pattern. Now again, we live in a culture, and we live in a culture that has made a cardinal virtue out of being politically correct, right? Right? I mean, in our culture today, to to be politically correct is probably, culturally speaking, the highest value, you know? You step out of line with that, and it's, you know, sort of anathema. Uh, I understand how most of us probably feel about that, and I I personally believe, you know, if you want to know what I think, I personally believe we've made way, way, way too big of a deal out of being politically correct, Okay? But at the same time, I would say that texts like this point us toward language that that we as Christians should always try to embody. Language that is gracious and beneficial and civil in tone. And I just think in, in a culture like ours, where so much language is used in ways that aren't civil and gracious and beneficial, when we embody the values that God calls us to, I think there's an opportunity there to invite other people to know Christ at a deeper level when they see that embodied in you and in me. So I know we're not interested in the the conversation about what it means to be politically correct. That's not why you came today. I understand that. But to be spiritually correct, can we put it that way? To be spiritually grounded, to be grounded by Ephesians 4 and Colossians 4. We seek that kind of language that is exceedingly gracious and beneficial. So as much as we might want to be the guy or the gal in our culture who tells it like it is, right, that usually leads to speech patterns that are anything but gracious and beneficial. I think God's word calls us to reflect something deeper there. In the Colossians text right here, Paul's emphasis is on those who are outside, those who have not yet come to a covenant relationship with God through Jesus, In the Ephesians passage, Paul's point there is is about how we have conversation within the body of Christ, how we treat each other with our speech pattern. So what I find interesting is that in both contexts, either as we are conversing with those who are outside of the covenant or as we converse with those who are on the inside of the covenant, the contexts call for the same thing. Both contexts call for gracious and edifying speech. And while we're talking about it, here's another important concept that I think we can just kind of put out here and spend some more time talking about later. But gracious conversation. We could spend a lot of time talking about what is involved in that, but I think it's important to mark out some boundary spaces here as well. Sometimes gracious conversation is just as much about what you don't say. Sometimes gracious conversation is marked out by, by here are some things that are just not, not really helpful Not really gracious and not really beneficial. I'm not going where you probably think I am with this point. (laughs) We've all been here before where we don't know exactly what to say to somebody who's hurting. Somebody in our life is just... It's just wrapped around the axle with pain, with grief, whatever it might be. And, and we so desperately want to say something. We have something in our heart and we want to say that, but we just don't know how. So few of us know exactly what to say. And then even if we know what to say, maybe we don't always know exactly how to say it. So you've been there. I've been there. We, we struggle with this. I think it's important here to, to reemphasize what the word calls us to. The Word of God says that we are to have these kinds of conversations, again, that are gracious. Gracious conversations are ones that that lighten a burden. Conversations that that lift a load from, from someone else. So those are the kinds of conversations, that's the kind of dialogue that we're called to embody. We're not called to have conversations where we always have all the answers, right? We're not called to have those conversations where we're always giving this theologizing advice that actually might be harmful, not beneficial, and not helpful. And I guess this is really important to me. This is on my heart. I just share it with you because because I've had so many of those experiences in my life. Uh, Some of you know my story. My parents died when I was a kid, and I, I very nearly left the faith. Because of the things, some of the bad theology I was given by well-intentioned people in the wake of my mother's death when I was seventeen. Now, again, I would have to tell you that I I am responsible for how I react to anything. I mean, this is not like, hey, someone else was responsible for for me in my spiritual life. No, we have to be accountable for that. So please hear me on that. I'm just saying, though, as a young, young man. Uh, I, was, I was offered a lot of theologizing advice because my well-intentioned people in my life were trying very desperately to help me understand what was going on. I think they missed an opportunity instead to just hurt with me. At the funeral home, when we were there about to bury my mother, some people uh, from my church family, from my Christian school, would say things to me like, you know, everything happens for a reason. So God must have had a reason taking your mother this is not really helpful it's certainly not gracious that's not the kind of thing i really needed to hear i i learned to really uh to to really quote romans eight twenty eight to people before they could quote it to me because i heard many people say according to the bible god works all things together for the good so you just need to try really hard to see this as a good thing wow that is not helpful And it is absolutely not a gracious thing to say to somebody when they're hurting, right? Uh, This is a popular one. Uh, God is going to give you a ministry through all of this. You know what? I didn't want a ministry. I wanted my mom. And maybe the most harmful thing anyone tried to say to me at all there was that uh, God must have needed your mother in heaven. Really, the all-sufficient God needs my mother in heaven more than I needed her at the age of 17. Hmm. That that took me a long time to get out of the uh, theological black hole that that led me into. So I can testify, okay, that those are some of the things that you should not say if you're trying to have gracious conversation with people when they are hurting. So you might be asking, okay, we get it, all right, we get it. So what do we say? What should we say to someone when they're hurting? And I would answer by saying, well, let's start with nothing, okay? Let's just start with the fact that you don't have to say anything. You don't have to say a word to just come into somebody's life and to hurt with them. You know, I found that when people are in pain, most of the time, you you know, she's hurting and you want to say something and, you know, she's not going to remember what you have to say. Unless it's something that's not helpful, unless it's something insensitive, then she'll probably remember it. She probably won't remember what you say, but she will remember that you were present, right? She will remember that you showed up, that you, that you stood by her in, in her pain. She will remember the tears on your cheek, and she will remember the warmth of, of your embrace. That's what she will remember. And folks, you don't have to say a word to simply hurt with somebody. So at that same funeral home, as I'm hearing a lot of these kinds of comments, this is thankfully the most formative memory I have of that day. I'm standing here, and I've told some of you this story before, but we're at the funeral home, and, uh, and we're up here at the receiving line. And, and uh, my mother was a, a public school educator in our small little hometown, and so it seemed like half the town turned out to remember Mrs. Bybee. But um, as the doors opened in the back, I saw uh, the father of a really good friend of mine. His name was Tom. And Tom walks in the door, and some of you won't remember this reference because it's really, really old, but you can Google it or whatever, but do you remember Grizzly Adams? Tom was like the closest embodiment I know of Grizzly Adams, just big mountain man, big old beard, you know, always wearing his boots, and we would ride the four-wheelers at his house and go deer hunting and everything. It was just kind of like a good old Tennessee boy. Well, Tom walks in the door, and he looks at the line, and it's, you know, wrapped around the building, and he somehow just, he spotted me. And our eyes locked, and he dialed in on me, and he comes barreling down the center aisle. You know, almost like, I dare you to tell me i got to stand in line. You know, and he made a beeline for me, and this was 25 years ago. I still remember it. He comes up to me, and he just grabs me around the shoulders, just hard, you know. Grabs me by the shoulders, and I could see this big burly man. He's starting to tear up. and He just holds me there for a few seconds, and he wraps his big arms around me, and squeezes the mess out of me, you know, and I just, like, in my remembrance, I, I feel like he picked me up off the ground. I don't know, but he, like, just held me so tightly there for a second and he put me back down and he squeezed my arms again and he turned around and walked out the door. He didn't say a word. <laughs> he didn't have to say anything. He communicated everything he needed to just by being present there in my pain. So so what you say, we understand. It it is secondary to being present, okay? But if you do decide that you need to say something, be sure those words are gracious. Simple words like, I love you. I'm sorry you're going through this. I'm here for you if you need me. Those communicate that, that I'm with you in your pain. I'm right there by your sides just let's stay in that lane you know we don't have to have answers to everything we don't have to do this you know spiritual armchair quarterback where we pretend to understand spiritual realities that are frankly beyond human comprehension anyway just hurt with people and if you do speak speak those words that are gracious that lighten their load finally kingdom language according to the word it is seasoned with salt well what does that mean Kingdom language is seasoned with salt. Well, salt is a preservative. It saves. It allows something to endure. It allows it to uh, be preserved, to persevere in some senses. Salt is also interesting. It's funny. If you try to describe the taste of salt to someone, how do you do that? Well, it's salty, right? <laughs> what kind of definition is that? Well, you know, it, it is, though. You just Salt's one of those things. You know it when you taste it, right? You just you know it. It has it brings flavor. It's not bland. It's anything but boring. One scholar says that to be seasoned with salt in the ancient world, they would use that as a phrase to talk about uh, witty and amusing, clever speech. Their saltiness would then prevent them from being ignored as being irrelevant or boring. It's one of the worst things we can do with the gospel is make it irrelevant, make it boring. No, when we talk about the story of Jesus, when we talk about the Word of God, we're talking about the most relevant thing on earth, right? And so when we talk about language that is seasoned with salt here, we're we're talking about language that's interesting, that's relevant, that's anything but boring. That's why one Translation of Colossians 4, 6 puts it this way. Let your conversation always be gracious and interesting so that you will know how to respond to any particular need. The conversation we're called to embody is is called to talk about the things that are relevant to our lives. Talk about what's really going on beneath the hood. You know, we we sometimes can be pretty superficial. I don't think we mean to. We're just kind of polite. How are you? Hey, I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great, you know deep down inside we're dying (laughs) but we understand why we do that you know we're not just opening up and sharing our story with every single person as you walk a life you did that you'd never get anywhere right you'd spend all day talking to people and eventually no one would want to talk with you but there needs to be there need to be some places where we can open up and let our guard down and talk at that deep level about what's really going on about what's relevant to our hearts what are you concerned about what are you afraid of what keeps you up at night Where's your greatest passion in the kingdom of God? What do you see God doing in Huntsville in 2017? What is good news? Those are the kinds of conversations I think that we're called to embody. if We're going to be new creations and embody this new culture we're talking about here. So as we, as we wind down here, a couple of things to say. It, it, one, in a, in a large church family like this, it can be difficult to have deeper relationships we hear that from people all the time it it can be really really difficult because of our size uh, to really get to know people have those deeper connections they always say it in, in a large church like this you have to work really hard at getting small at creating contexts where people can get in smaller groups and share. Uh, for some of us, that's Bible class, but let's be honest, some of our Bible classes are as large as some churches, the churches that we grew up in, okay? So it uh, may be smaller than this gathering, but still, we, we have to work really hard at creating those places where we can get small and those relational connections can grow because without those relational connections, I don't think we're ever going to talk at this deep level that we're called to, uh, to talk. But one of the ways that, that we want to make available to you one of the ways we're working hard at getting smaller as a church family is, is through the creation of some community life groups, some new life groups. Uh, here in just a minute, as we wrap up, Doug Smith will come and share a little bit uh, with you about that. But if you'll recall, about a year ago, our elders shared with us a five-year vision. And part of that vision, one of the initiatives that came out of that, that vision, was a, a re-envisioning of our small group ministry. And so after a lot of prayer and a lot of conversation and a lot of time uh, working through some things, we're we're ready to launch those. And again, Doug will have more to say about that here at the end of the hour. But I want to close by asking you just a couple of questions for your your consideration. Uh, Do you have godly conversation partners? Are there some women and some men in your life that you can share with at a, at a deep level, that you can have these kinds of kingdom conversations we've been talking about here today? Do, are there people in your life who you trust to speak those kinds of grace-filled and salt-seasoned words the Word of God calls us to today? Do you have a place where you can have those spiritual conversations about what's really happening, about what's really relevant to your situation and where you are right now in the present? If not, I would encourage you to think about joining one of these life groups. We're all created in and for community. And the body of Christ is made up of these kinds of relational connections. It's no accident that God tells us in his word that we are a family. The language he comes to us with is language of family. God as father. Christ as son. We becoming God's children. I think that's powerful. So let's remember as a family To have the kinds of conversations, the kind of speech that is reflective of our identity as a new creation people. The invitation of Christ is extended today and He bids us to come. You'll see your shepherds here at the front of this room, they'll be in the back and in the balcony as well. If you have a need that you would like to express either publicly or privately, I hope you'll do that as we stand and sing this song together. We're part of the